Capital Allocators is brought to you by NASDAQ Solovis. As an allocator, every investment decision you make has a direct impact on the financial well-being of your stakeholders and beneficiaries. But with a fragmented portfolio view across your public and private market holdings, you can risk making decisions without the full visibility of their impact on the overall portfolio. Organizations need a solution that delivers a consolidated portfolio view to let the investment team shift their focus from operations to analysis. A solution that helps create context faster and take the right actions sooner. NASDAQ Solovis is a software platform that unifies your public and private market holdings data to create a single source of truth. It empowers investment teams to understand the impact of every decision with accurate and reliable information. Solovis delivers transparency and insight into performance, liquidity, and risk across an entire multi-asset class portfolio. You can learn more and request a demo at nasdaq.com slash solutions slash Solovis. That's nasdaq.com slash solutions slash S-O-L-O-V-I-S. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Neil Ford, a 25-year advertising and marketing executive who specializes in the art of storytelling. Neil's ranked among the top 10 most awarded creative directors in the world. He served as the Worldwide Director of Creative Learning at Saatchi & Saatchi and developed award-winning campaigns for the likes of Budweiser, Lexus, and Sony. Most recently, Neil coaches C-suite executives, is CMO for Within Inc., and has built a following on social media for his brief inspirational videos about the kindness of everyday people. Neil launches into our conversation with one of his stories about kindness and then breaks down its components. We turn to the process of telling a story, including preparation, the arc of a story, and audience engagement. Neil shares tips he gives executives for presenting to small and large groups, improving on video, practicing, and working with nervous anxiety. We close with another of Neil's fun stories, this time leaving out the breakdown to apply what you learn. I hope Neil's gems help you improve the stories we deliver and listen to every day in our personal and professional lives. As we turn the calendar on the new year, past guest Katie Milkman reminds us that it's a wonderful time for a fresh start to form new and improved habits. In the event you're struggling to get started, something another past guest, James Clear, says is tantamount to forming habits, I thought I'd suggest an atomic habit to kick off 2023. How about once a week, put at the top of your task list to tell someone you encounter about the award-winning Capital Allocators podcast? Now, it's true we've won some awards along the way, but don't worry about that. It sounds really impressive, and you'll sound culturally plugged in just for mentioning that. Now, tell someone about the show, check it off your task list, and off you go to forming another positive, impactful habit in the new year. Happy New Year, and thanks for spreading the word. 
please enjoy my conversation with Neil Ford. Neil, great to see you. Hey, nice to see you too, Ted. Thank you for having me on. I thought it'd be fun, as we're going to discuss storytelling, to just have you open by telling a story. I was in Chicago doing a very large presentation to an enormous client. There were 300 people in the room. My bosses were in attendance. And oh my Lord, I just blew it. I blew it so badly. I was pretty sure I didn't have a job in the morning. <laughs> and so I'm staying in this hotel. It's a very fine hotel in Chicago and it's late at night. It's about, oh, two in the morning. And I just couldn't sleep for obvious reasons. And I thought maybe the bar is open. I'll go down and drown my sorrows. So I walked downstairs in the hopes that it's open. And sure enough, the light's on. Now there's nobody there except this woman bartender, tough looking. She's like Polish. She looks like she led a shipyard strike against the Soviets. <laughs> As I go down there and go up to the bar, I order a gin and tonic. This was back when you could smoke in bars, by the way. So she had one going, big thick cloud of smoke. She sizes me up <laughs> through the smoke. And I said, a gin and tonic, please. She goes, yes, you could have something dull and unremarkable. Or you could have the best vodka in the world, up to you. So I said, well, I'll take the best vodka in the world. She takes another drag on her cigarette and she says, you don't mind maybe if it's slightly illegal? And I, what? And she says, ah, it's got a blade of grass in it from Poland. This makes the customs people wet the beds. So I go, ah, oh, no, I'm good for it. She goes, okay. So she pulls out two glasses and she sets them out and she pours me just a straight vodka almost up to the rim. And for herself, she does the same. So I'm okay, is this how they do it here? We toast each other. And when we clink glasses, I can see on her hand, she's got this prison tattoo, a phrase in Polish. I'm thinking, hey, what does that say on your hand there? And she says, she takes a drag off her cigarette. 20,000 years ago, odds are good. You get killed by a tiger or a bear or uh, fall through the ice. And we learned to freak out as a species because everything was trying to kill you. And we survive because of this. But now we have a bad meeting. We freak out. But you know, it's not going to kill us, okay? So Tattoo says, Nyama Tigresa, there is no tiger. And I looked at her like she was reading my mind. And I said, I think you may be the greatest bartender in Chicago. And she takes a big drag off her cigarette and goes, you may applaud. <laughs> Now, as it turns out, she was not an employee of the hotel. <laughs> she was a guest just like me. She had come down, same time, found the liquor cabinets completely locked, and the only thing there that was available was this bottle of illegal booze that was under the counter. So that's why she brought up this brook. <laughs> well, Neil, I'd love to break down that story a little bit. How do you think about the arc of that story and some of the things you just told along the way that just made it so engaging. I had the benefit of that happened to me. The beauty of it is that you can recall events in your mind pretty vividly. And now all that's important is you say, okay, well, what do I want to make sure that people hear so that they can get to the same emotional space that I was in? For example, one of the beats of the story is the opening is me falling flat on my face. And even though that does seem to surrender a little status on my part. Everybody can identify with that moment. They all say, yes, something similar has happened to me. The next piece of action is, okay, so there I am. I'm frustrated and I can't sleep. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe the hotel bar is open. 
you're thinking, okay, well, he's going to do something to try to relieve his pain. So here we are in a hotel bar at one or two in the morning. In the mind of the listener, they're with you. They understand where you are and they've got an image in their head. And the beauty of storytelling is it's theater of the mind. That is, they're forming the images. And because they're forming the images, this is a way for them to remember what's happened. The great thing about stories is people are often able to recite them. There's no way I could give you 50 pieces of data and have you remember them later. But in a story, they can remember the basic arc of it, and it's memorable in that way. They can repeat it. It's got a fairly simple beginning. I botched a business meeting. Probably was going to lose my job. I couldn't sleep. I decided to go down in the bar. I was a little surprised, happily, that there was somebody there. In this case, what I've chosen to do is portray the character of this woman with a certain description so that it populates in your head as a vivid image. I don't know whether you think the woman is attractive or not, but I know you know this. She's tough. She's a smoker. She's got a tattoo on her hand, and she's alone in a bar at two in the morning. (laughs) When I walk up to her and I order a drink, she looks at me through the smoke. She's sizing me up. The whole thing about the cigarette is just a way of giving her the opportunity to be powerful and characteristic. When she blows out the smoke at the end, well, you may applaud. It just adds to her air of fatalism. I've seen more than you can imagine. And when I pay it off at the end, it turns out she wasn't an employee of the hotel. She was just having a drink with a stranger. Those beats, those details. Any story really shouldn't be a long description of an environment. But if you are going to describe the environment, the points that you describe should have a reason for appearing. If I say the booze is illegal, why does that matter? Well, because it turns out that's why it's out there. It's not back behind the counter. I'd love to turn to your background and path to getting to the point where you really so understand this art of storytelling. I came from 25 years in advertising where I was working for some of the world's biggest ad agencies. I was on the creative leadership side of the business. I would be the creative director that was trying to manage the messaging for a brand like Budweiser or Toyota or Sony. And in the later part of my career, I actually specialized in business development. We were pursuing large global accounts like Samsung on a global level. When I was with the global ad agency Saatchi and Saatchi in New York, because our teams got kind of famous for how well they presented their material, they made me the worldwide head of creative education, which at its core was really just a storytelling school. And the reason it was so important to them was when you are an advertising agency, you really are not showing off a physical product. You're saying, this is an idea and I need you to understand it. And I need you to grasp what is likely to happen. I need you to feel the same thing the audience would feel so that you will understand the economic impact of communicating to the world that this is who you are. I put in my easily 10,000 hours doing presentations. And just like stand-up comedians who tune up their act on the road, bombing night after night and finally arriving at that place where they think they kind of get it about what works and doesn't work. I went through the hard knock school of presenting thousands and thousands of times while watching the faces of the audience and saying, okay, that didn't go over. (laughs) How do you do this? It's funny. There is an art form at work. Eventually, I started taking on clients in the C-suites because it started with some of the Saatchi senior executives would have me tune up their presentations. And then later when I was in Silicon Valley, executives would often come to me and say, hey, listen, can I run this by you? And 
that's turned out to be a pretty good source of income for me. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think understanding how to tell stories is so valued by the C-suite? It's a really significant thing for an executive to be good at selling their message and their agenda. It really is because consider they are growing in consciousness of the power of belief in their company mission for their own people to be more engaged. Anybody who's in the hotel business or the restaurant business, they understand the attitude of the staff has everything to do with the satisfaction of the customers. And the way that you make a hotel staff highly engaged is they believe in what they're doing and they love their company and they want to communicate that to the world. When the chief executive can make you feel this is a brand that you can believe in, they go out into the world with a different attitude. On your website, Ted, you have this wonderful quote from Warren Buffett. And the quote is, only when the tide goes out do you discover who has been swimming naked. It's a terrific investor quote. And what it means is that when market conditions worsen and things go a little bit south, what remains are the ones that are legit and the ones that are not legit get exposed, literally. Warren Buffett could have said it that way, or they could have spun it in this really neat little analogy where it creates a vivid image in your mind. And what happens is you look at Warren Buffett this way. You go, he explains things simply. That is a very intelligent man. So it's not just that he's got good advice and that he's got a long history of success. Just listening to him, you think, that's an intelligent person and not one that's ego-driven. It was almost a Will Rogers-style message. It's just so much easier to internalize a message when it comes in the form of a story because it's the most ancient of all the art forms. We, as a species, used to sit around the campfire (laughs) hundreds of thousands of years ago. There we are around the campfire going, tomorrow we will hunt the bison and this is what will happen. They create these myths and they rivet each other's attention. In Viking culture, when there was a big raid and it brought back lots of treasure, they would pay an orator, a poet, that whoever was the big chieftain would pay the poet a lot of money to create an epic poem about them. (laughs) so that it would create this myth, this mythology around them. This is how ancient this is, Ted. It's no accident that storytelling contains power because it's just baked into our DNA. If you don't mind my just staying on this subject, the difference between sales and marketing is that sales is asking for a date, but marketing is why they say yes. Everyone is subject to confirmation bias. That is, if they like you and they think you're smart. And then they're going to discount the evidence that doesn't agree with you. You are trying to achieve confirmation bias in any presentation. And the best way to do that is with a story. It's the most attention-getting. It's the easiest to listen to. It's the one that doesn't fight their patience. They're riveted and engaged instead of impatient and exhausted. I'd love to break down some aspects of this school of hard knocks and the art of storytelling and try to distill some of the lessons you've taken away. Why don't we start with How do you think about preparing and setting the stage for whatever presentation you're preparing to give? Preparation, I think, is something that people really underestimate. And I don't mean preparation in the form of rehearsing what you act, but preparation in terms of doing sufficient research about who you're speaking to, to know what it is that drives them and what they really want. Your number one mission in any kind of presentation is help them deliver something of value, give them something to walk away with where they feel like that was worth it. 
I'm glad I showed up here. That means that you have to know what they want, what will benefit them. As you know, there's going to be a very big difference between a group of 40-somethings who are starting to get into some pretty big earning years and looking for ways to make money and a group of 75-year-olds who are trying to protect their nest eggs. There's a difference of ambition. Not only that, but because they come from different age cohorts, they respond differently to mentions of celebrities. And likewise, a baby boomer is a lot less sensitive about terminology and pronouns and that sort of thing. But if you don't know that, if you have the same pattern with a 75-year-old that you're doing for a 25-year-old, you haven't done sufficient research to understand how you're likely to be received. So that's the first thing. Who are you speaking with? Know enough about them. The second thing that you would be doing to prepare is to say, my job here is to benefit them. Therefore, I'm going to try and package this information in such a way that it's easily remembered. What often people will do is they think that it's preparation to make sure that they've covered every point that they want to do, so they'll do a lot of bullet points. Essentially, they do a data dump. And unfortunately, this is a disservice rather than an aid to the audience because by overloading the audience with too much information, you have actually created a scenario where they won't remember anything. Imagine juggling three balls, that's manageable. Juggling five balls, all the balls fall. And that's the truth of overloading audiences with too much information. So part of the preparation process is, how do I cut this down to just the things I want them to remember? And by the way, it's no sin to stand up in front of a room or any size group and say, listen, I'll say a bunch of things, but I just want you to remember these three things. If you walk out of here and you remember these three things, this will be worth it. That's a nice service where somebody's going to tell you ahead of time what you should be listening for. And then when they hear it, they go, okay, I got it. There's another element when it comes to this idea of what's memorable. This is when we return to the idea of stories. Stories are vastly more memorable. It's how we are tuned to package information. Bullet points are for memos, not for presentations. Bullet points are overrated as a way of containing information. If I wanted to make certain kinds of points, it is useful to explain how it is that you came to believe something. The same way that Warren Buffett is able to communicate, market downturns are not all bad. What market downturns do is they expose the fakes. This is your opportunity to know that when people still have their swim trunks on, when the ocean goes down, now you know more about them. It's just easier to remember this way than if I were to just say the text. When you're telling these great stories on your YouTube channel, what is the arc of that story? I'll tell you another story and I'll do the postmortem on the story and it really helps to understand the beats. My wife and I were walking along the New Orleans waterfront. This was back when people didn't have cameras in their phones. I had this big camera around my neck. Obviously, we're tourists. As we're walking along, I hear this man's voice say, Dan, those are some nice shoes. Where'd you get those shoes? I want to get some just like it. I turn thinking this guy's probably looking at my wife's feet and instead he's looking at my feet. You can see he's a little down at the heels, maybe a little rough around the edges. Is he a panhandler? I'm not sure. And he goes, yeah, those are some great shoes. Where'd you get those? And I'm trying to remember. And while I'm in that memory bank access, he goes, oh, I know you got those shoes. And I said, no, I'm from out of town. I don't think so. And he goes, no, I know you got them. I go, no, I don't think so. And he goes, I bet you $5 I can tell you you got those shoes. And I'm thinking, oh, it's a con. My wife is literally pulling on my arm like, let's go. But we're on vacation. And I'm thinking to myself, is it worth $5 to hear the punchline to this gag? <laughs> yeah, it is. So I go, okay. And he goes, you bet me $5? And I say, yeah. And he goes, you got those shoes on the end of your feet. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So I start dragging my wallet out of my pocket. And it gets to the top of the arc. And my wife says, you're not going to pay him. 
And it starts to descend down into my pocket. And the guy says, it's cool, man. A lot of fellas let their woman tell them what to do. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, here it is. I have to pay him. Now, the story is important for this reason. What you saw there was a masterclass in power. When we walked into the situation, I have the money. I have the attractive spouse. I have free time to go on vacation. I'm the man. He has nothing. He's a panhandler. Now, his job is to try to get money from me. Now, he could ask, but you know how people are with panhandlers. It's very unlikely that you're going to get a buck. He starts out, I am way above him on the status curve. But when he says, hey, I like those shoes. I want to get some just like it. What he's communicating is, I believe I am of equal status with you. So he has lowered my status and raised his own. And now we are on the same level. He says, oh, wait, I know where you got those shoes. He's asked me a question, but then he's beaten me to the answer, which actually elevates him slightly because he's saying, I don't need you to tell me. So now he's slightly above me. But I say, no, you don't know where I got those. And he says, yes, I do. So there's now this power balance that's flexing. I'm saying no, and I'm trying to get back to zero. And he's saying, yes, I know where you got those. He's trying to get above me. And finally, he challenges me to a contest. He's challenged me to a duel, which means he has claimed overtly, I am better than you. And in order for me to not surrender that status, I have to agree to this contest. Okay, so he's trapped me. When he finally reveals the answer for $5 prize, he has tricked me. So he has not only beaten me, but he's outwitted me. He has really risen in power. And the only way for me to restore my sense of self as a man is to honor the bet that I have agreed to. Now, this is the key moment. My wife says, you're not going to pay him. This is a con. And in that moment, he says, it's all right. A lot of fellas let their woman tell them what to do. A panhandler is saying to me, I pity you. Okay? <laughs> so my status now is really dropped. And in order to recover it, to get back to zero, if I'm any kind of man, I have to pay him. Because that's the only way I can prove that my wife doesn't tell me what to do. Let's go back to why you had asked the question. What are the beats of this and how do you decide what's going on? That power struggle is actually very useful for anybody that's about to stand up in front of an audience. It's useful in two ways. The first way is the story beats go like this. I'm going to introduce a story where I'm setting the stage. Okay, here we are. We're in New Orleans. We're on the waterfront. We're a couple of tourists. Okay, so you understand the context. Then something happens, which is a man asks about my shoes. We turn and I can see that he is slightly down at the heels and this is likely a con. So what has happened in the story beats is I've gone, we were here and this happened. Therefore, my wife reacts this way. But I'm curious about this event. Therefore, I am not afraid to accept this challenge. But he outwits me. Therefore, I have to pay. But my wife will not let me. Therefore, I start to not. But he says, if you're any kind of man, you'd pay me. Therefore, I pay him. Okay, so what I'm pointing out is you never go, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You go, this happened, therefore that happened. But then this happened, therefore that happened. A great story will have this rhythm to it. A wave of a moment will then lead to another moment in such a way that it creates tension 
it isn't enough to just say, I was down at the market and I picked up a zucchini and it turned out to be $5. End of story. Why a $5 zucchini? That was the first reason is just to explain the story. But the second reason I wanted to tell the story was this idea of status is very important when it comes to you standing in front of an audience. What will sometimes happen, especially if trying to sell somebody something, it's very important that instead of thinking of themselves as superior to you, they engage in a contest with you and they give you respect because you have managed to present yourself well. How that manifests is like this. Oftentimes when people stand up in front of audiences, they'll say things like, we're so excited to be here. And they don't realize that that's actually a surrendering of status. Why are you excited? Well, it sounds like you're cringing a little and you're saying to yourself, I'm so excited to be in your presence. Thank you for allowing us to be here. That's no way to begin. If you're really excited to be there, then you should begin with, wow, I cannot wait to share this with you. This is going to be hugely beneficial. And by the time you get to the end of this, I just want you to remember three reasons why this is a great thing for me to share. That kind of level of enthusiasm, that's real excitement. Imagine how much fun you'd have, Ted, if you were able to say to a retiree who was living on social security, hey, I just found out that you have an uncle that left you $10 million. That would be hugely enjoyable. And you wouldn't say, I'm so excited to be here. You'd go, Aunt Martha, check this out. You'd leap right into it. When people stand in front of an audience, if they go in with the orientation that I really am going to try and help you, it creates an impatience to get to it. That's very contagious. That sense of enthusiasm, rather than this cringing throat clearing at the beginning of a presentation. When you're coaching executives, what are some of your favorite tips that you see come up that people can improve upon? You have to really fixate on, here's how I'm trying to help. The idea is not for you to be a slick presenter. The idea is for you to be helpful and to make it worth their while, make it worth listening to you. Oftentimes, people overestimate how important it is to appear professional when in fact what they need to do is they need to be sincere and they need to be their authentic self. I'll tell a quick tale that involves a group of businesswomen. There are these 12 businesswomen. They're all waiting to see a presentation. These are hard chargers. These are very accomplished women. They get introduced. A speaker stands up. He's there to sell something. He pulls a speech from his pocket, a short speech, and he proceeds to, without looking up, read it word for word, haltingly, looking up once from the paper and then back to the paper, and he reads the entire thing rather nervously. Then, without really proposing a call to action or a price, he simply sits back down. You would expect, I think, that nobody would buy anything, that these women would be embarrassed by that whole thing. But instead, the actual results were that he sold out his entire inventory of product. And not only that, but a few of the women made a point of complimenting him on how well the presentation went. And you're thinking, what? Well, the presenter was seven years old and he was selling cookies <laughs> that he and his sister had made so that they could pay for their summer camp. Now, the point is this, that the women were not there to be impressed. They were getting something different emotionally from that presentation. It isn't important that he be a slick presenter. In fact, if that little seven-year-old boy was a really super slick presenter, it might have been a little creepy. They might not have been so inclined to lavish love and affection on him. But that's the way that most CEOs misinterpret what they're standing up in front of a company to do. They think that they're there to project power and that they are there to sometimes bamboozle an audience. When you're standing up in front of an audience and you're super slick, People are pretty sophisticated about knowing what your motives are. 
Therefore, you've got to be clean on what your motives are. Make sure that you really are there to help. When you're encouraging someone, therefore, to be authentic, how do you coach them to get better in their presentation? Oftentimes, CEOs and CFOs and CMOs are very good. They're quite good presenters. That's how they got to where they are is because they're very good at representing themselves. What they are not typically able to do is devote a lot of time to a presentation. When they do that, they do themselves a disservice because they wing it. And in winging it, they're demonstrating their slickness, but not their sincerity. So the first thing is, I'd like you to prepare more so that you're able to do this in such a way that you're comfortable being yourself, not feeling like you have to put on a facade and read the teleprompter. There's something that I coach people on. It takes them aback, which is, this isn't about you. This is about them. So you need to observe them closely enough where if it isn't working, you can stop and ask them why. Let's say you're in a room full of people and you're trying to explain to them the benefits of something and you can see that they're confused. Well, clearly something's causing that confusion. And rather than just keep going to the end and leave them confused, you should stop and say, I'm looking at your faces. I'm getting a little bit of that confusion. That tells me I'm not successfully describing this. Can you tell me where I've gone wrong here? What's confusing you? You know, the beauty of that kind of engagement with an audience is that they will say to themselves, wow, okay, they're present. They're here. They're responding to me. My reaction to them is important, which means I really should be paying attention <laughs> because I'm likely to get called on by this person. So when you are deeply enough engaged to be in the moment and recognize when it's not going over and be also prepared to stop and listen to feedback, that is a very powerful thing of communicating your level of sincerity and care. What is useful to do is to literally take a breath and look at the audience and remember where you are and think to yourself, I just want to help. I just want to help. Let me see. What is going to help them the most? I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com allocators. That's netsuite.com allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. A lot of what happens in the investment world are in small groups. It could be an internal research team. It could be a presentation to a small committee. How do you suggest that people give effective presentations in small groups? The beauty of being in a small group is that it gives you the chance to engage people as though it's a conversation. 
rather than a presentation. And you should engage people in conversation and ask for their feedback. Be prepared to call on them and say, hey, Ted, is this resonating with you? Does this make sense? I just want to make sure you're getting it because I think this can benefit you. Is it landing? And encourage them to actually speak. In doing so, you're engaged with them. When you are in a very large room and you're presenting to a big group, I would encourage you to be the same. It helps to conduct yourself as though you are in a conversation rather than making a presentation. Because large or small, if audience members feel like you are just having a conversation with them, it's a powerful signal that you are comfortable and unafraid. There is no case in human evolution where it was ever a good thing to be standing alone facing 5,000 pairs of eyes and be unarmed. That was never a good thing. It's no secret that people are nervous standing in front of a big room making a presentation. Yeah, you're supposed to be. That is how we survived 20,000 years ago. It's that we learned to freak out in danger. So it's very powerful thing to be able to isolate members of the audience, just pick them out, look at them, look at them long enough to say, look, I'm only talking to this person. I'm just talking to that person. And then you switch and you do the same thing with somebody else. I'm just talking to that person. It becomes more, can I tell you a story or may I give you a piece of information I think is going to benefit you? You hear a lot about people getting nervous in front of large groups. So there is that you're in it focusing on one person. What are some of the other tips that you give people when they're preparing to go in front of a large group? Practice certainly helps and that will get you over it. But there's another thing, which is it's the way that you frame your nervousness. So for example, before any kind of sporting performance or before any kind of big performance, whether it's a stage performance or stand-up routine, you're going to have butterflies. It's just, that's how it's going to go. That energy actually will power you. It can be gasoline. It can be gasoline in an engine rather than gasoline all over you on fire. (laughs) So you got to just say to yourself, look, I'm going to get nervous. That's not a bad thing. Allow that to increase your energy level and get you out there and excited. I often caution people, don't say you're nervous. It doesn't help any. It doesn't have the effect that you think it's going to have where it wins you over for them. They see you as a wounded animal, and that's a problem. Instead, let the nervous energy resonate in excitement. In order to do that, you have to be prepared for this moment. When I'm coaching people is to say, you are going to be nervous. This is going to be how you feel. Let's craft a beginning to get you past that moment to use that moment to your advantage. So for example, instead of getting up and saying, I'm really excited to be here, you say, I cannot wait to tell you what I'm about to do because this is how it's going to benefit you. When you walk out of here, you're going to have the following three things that you're going to be able to use. Okay. Now, once this has begun, once you start down that road, the nervousness does tend to evaporate pretty quickly because who's nervous if they're being helpful? If the audience members suddenly go, oh, this is going to benefit me, their body language changes, their attitude changes. You are the hero that they've been waiting for, and they are paying rapt attention. The eyes become less threatening and more encouraging. It really does come down, Ted, to let's prepare for this moment. Let's acknowledge it's going to happen and get ready for it by knowing what you're going to do. What are some of the other don'ts in addition to don't Put yourself down by saying, hey, I'm nervous. Don't feel obligated to use the entire time you've been given. Very few people will complain 
when you take less time than you have been allotted to tell a story or to make a presentation. Often they'll find it, they'll be pleasantly surprised that you were able to do everything in a shorter time. This requires a certain amount of rehearsal and this requires a certain amount of preparation to make it more compact, but it is a great gift to do things in bite size rather than long drawn out tales and lots of bullets. Another thing is don't craft yourself as the hero of your tale. Don't think this is about you. This isn't about you. You're only standing up there to benefit other people. It's about the audience. It's about what they need. That helps in a number of ways, but the number one way that it helps is when you are being helpful to people, they see you as a friend. There's such value for you in them looking upon you friendly. What happens when someone does craft themselves as the hero of the story? There are two outcomes. The first is that subconsciously, people don't want you to succeed. They go, oh my God, I just don't believe them and I don't want them to succeed. The problem with the credibility is that there's that great quote from George Orwell, no autobiography is to be trusted unless it reveals something disgraceful. Most people that self-aggrandize, they lie about other things. That creates a credibility problem. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that when an audience hears you as the hero of the story, they are no longer standing next to you. They're watching you. And that doesn't create an air of camaraderie and friendship. It doesn't make you one of them. I'd love to ask you about video presentations. You're doing a lot of these now on YouTube. We've come out of the pandemic, but there's still a lot that happens on video. What have you learned from doing these about being effective on video? Number one thing that I've learned about video is that there's a power in gestures. <laughs> when you are on screen, it sometimes helps to pull your hands up higher in the image so they can see your hands and you're explaining. And this dynamism of the gestures creates more of the impression that you are actually there with them. It sounds like a small thing, but it's actually a big thing. Whether you're on a Zoom call and naturally they can't see your hands because it's above the shoulders. I would encourage your listeners to actually bring their hands into the frame so that they can see the gestures that support their talking. That extra added energy is useful and it helps overcome the metronome of your speech. Another thing is even in video, it really helps to not be monotonous. That is, allow your voice to go high, go low, to swerve this way and that, and that will naturally engage your head. <laughs> it sounds like minor things, but they're helpful to the audience when they feel like you're an energetic figure and you're dynamic. Anything else you found? Well, in my case, what I have tried to do is isolate the background in such a way that the only thing that they can pay attention to is the story. Because people are so media savvy, they're quite critical of inappropriate images or badly timed execution. And so if you can get them to form the images in their own mind, it's perfectly edited. It's perfectly appropriate to the moment. There are a lot of people who will say, I'm a bad presenter. You hear that a lot. In the work you've done with executives over the years, I'm really curious to get your sense of what part being a good presenter is the nature of the person versus the nurture and experience that you can teach. Yeah. Some people really are just natural storytellers around the dinner table in their household that somebody was able to really spin a yarn, which is fabulous. But even people that aren't necessarily good storytellers can nevertheless, through practice, acquire the needed signposts of what makes them good. It's like training for sports. You start out, you're a very awkward ice skater. Ice skating maybe isn't natural to you, but over time you can become quite good at it. 
Lord knows that golfers understand perfectly. I don't know how many people walk naturally onto a golf course and know how to swing a club brilliantly. It does require a lot of practice. When it comes to nurture, I want to reinforce yet again how important it is that it isn't necessarily the slickness and your aptitude for presentation that makes you a good presenter. It's your motives and your authenticity and your real desire to help. If you genuinely want to help somebody, it just tends to be so much easier. It gets received so much better that it's not an issue of whether or not you were a good presenter. All that was important is that the takeaway was of benefit. That's what they remember about you. How do you recommend that someone goes about practicing? Try to set the stage in such a way that everything about where you're going to present and how you're going to present, you are mimicking in your presentation. You won't be able to have the faces of your audience there. Nevertheless, it will help literally do it into a mirror so that you can see what they see. By doing it in a mirror and not being ashamed to just go ahead and by yourself do the real show, it will give you the chance to tune it up. I've had the chance because I've been doing so many videos, I've had the chance to watch myself again and again. And I can tell you that I've made a lot of progress in my own case in the last year, just watching myself hundreds of times. Because as I edit them, you get the chance to see, well, what works and what doesn't work and some of the affectations that you perhaps don't like and the tilt of your head and, and so on. When you are rehearsing, I would recommend a mirror. And the second thing is don't say to yourself, okay, and then I'll say this and this and this. No, no, no. Go ahead and say it. Do the whole thing, soup to nuts, from how you react to the introduction to when you are asking for Q&A. Say the whole thing. When you rehearse it exactly as it's going to be done, it makes it that much easier for you. Plus, you walk onto the stage or in front of the camera in such a way that you feel confident because you know you've done it. You've put in sufficient effort. And that confidence is a very powerful thing that you can't fake. What have you learned in your coaching practice about presentations and feedback that you didn't fully understand in your time at Saatchi and Saatchi and the other roles you had in advertising? Forgive me for banging away at this one thing, but people often misunderstand what it is that they're really trying to learn. They think they're trying to learn to be a professional, learn for it to be really seamless and clean and so forth. When what I'm really teaching is, let's get you to the place where you're helping people. It's a funny thing. There is a wonderful quote from Winston Churchill's mother, who was an American. She had the chance to meet both Benjamin Disraeli and William Gladstone, who were both regarded in the English tradition as great orators. They came from that long parliamentarian school of debate and speechifying where they were absolutely the world's best, no doubt. And they asked her for her impression of Gladstone and Disraeli. What was the difference between the two? And she said, when I met Gladstone, I felt like he was clearly the most brilliant man in England. And when I met Disraeli, I felt like the most brilliant woman in England. Her summary was, in my mind, the exact point about why I keep banging away on the audience and benefiting them. Are you there to impress everybody with how smart you are? Or are you there to make people feel like they gained something from this exchange? As we wrap this sort of assessment on the art of storytelling, I'd love to hear about endings, about either finishing a story or finishing a presentation. What matters most? What you want to do is you want to land hard on something that they can take away emotionally. 
a great ending is usually a story, frankly, because a story has a conclusion and it's got that appropriate moment for surprise or laughter or applause. Typically in my own presentations, I will begin and I will end with a story. And the benefit of doing that is that because it has such a clear punchline, it signals this is over. For example, Ted, when I tell that bartender in Chicago story, the benefit of it is that her reaction, her last line is, you may applaud. And so I have the benefit of being able to say, and we have now reached the point of the presentation where you may applaud. <laughs> a great ending will make it quite clear that this is over and here's how I expect you to react. What's more, a great ending will contain within it a germ of the very first thing you said. So you return to the beginning. This is why we were all here this morning. So those were my three points, and I hope you walked away with them. How do you coach people on an ask? If it's a presentation that's intended to be a sales pitch, there's marketing aspect to it, as we talked about. What are the ways that people can most effectively get to that point, whether that ask is a recommendation for an investment in our case or a pitch to invest in a fund? I had a colleague who used to do a brilliant job of that because he would reach a part of the presentation where he was about to say, so we'd like you to approve this. And what he would do is he would say, if you can approve that today, we can have this commercial prepared, shot, edited, and on the air by April 2nd. We expect that it will have an impact on sales as of April 15th. I'm going to turn it over to Jack to ask for your vote. What was nice about it was it was absolutely unambiguous what the next steps were provided that they did something. If you push this button, these things will then happen. And this is how we'll know they worked. And this is when we can expect to have another conversation. Not only was that closed a way of saying, if you do this action, the following things will happen, but it bakes in the, and I am responsible enough to live by my recommendation and set the stage for us having, gauging its results. People are going to be a lot more likely to do something if they know that you will accept responsibility for what happens. Let's say, for example, that in the case of investment, past performance is no guarantee of future results. We just all accept that. That's the way the world is. It's chaos. However, what is nice is if you were able to say, and then as of such and such date, we'll come back, talk about it, and assess whether it lived up to that. And what happens is when they understand that you feel responsible and you are responsive and you anticipate that next conversation, they're going to be a lot more likely to push the button because you have built in that next step. How do I know it's going to happen? Well, we don't know, but I will tell you this. We're going to get together and we're going to assess it. Before we turn to a couple of closing questions, in line with what you said earlier, it probably is appropriate to have started with the story and end with the story. So why don't you pick out another and take us off with the story. Ted, we live in a day and age where everybody thinks that the country's lost its mind and we all hate each other and there's just so much conflict. And we really feel like this is unprecedented. America's never been like this. But they don't seem to remember what it was like back in 1969, back when the Vietnam War was tearing the country apart. And there was the Manson family and the Zodiac Killer, and they had assassinated presidents. They'd shot JFK. They'd shot Robert Kennedy. They'd shot Martin Luther King. Political assassination was a thing back then. I was nine years old, and my father, who had grown up in the Depression, his confidence in America was just at a low ebb. 
He really felt, you can't trust anybody, and this country has gone to hell. We were driving on the five, heading north from L.A. to Oakland, and we were in this old 1960 Oldsmobile, and the water pump blew out. And this was way before cell phones. So we were stuck about nine miles south of Bakersfield with no coolant. We were going to have to hoof it into town to get help. And along comes this young cowboy in a flatbed. He looked like maybe he was about 22 years old. He says, hey, fellas, looks like you got some trouble here. Can I help out? My father, all he's got on him is just a Chevron gas card. He doesn't have any money. He figured we would just go south to north just off the card. And so he says to the guy, well, I can't pay you. And the guy goes, well, I wasn't going to charge you. So he manages to hook the car to his truck with electrical conduit, and we drive on into Bakersfield. Now, this is a Sunday, and it is in the middle of summer, so it's hotter than the hinges. And he gets this guy literally out of church, this mechanic who has emerged from church, and he says, hey, can you help these boys fix this water pump? He goes, yeah, I can do that. We get down to this guy's place and I put it up on the lift. And my dad says, hey, now, wait a minute. I can't pay you. And the guy says, oh, we'll work something out. And so then they find out they don't have the pump in stock. They have to roust out the local Napa Auto Parts owner. So now he's got to come down. And my father says, all right, hold on, slow down. I cannot pay you. I do not have any money. We need to get this thing settled. And so he's terrified that somehow this is all a scam. So they go, look, if it'll make you feel any better, the cowboy says, I got about three loads of watermelons. I got to get off a rail spur down here. If you and the boy will help me load these watermelons, it's about three hours worth of work. I'll pay for the water pump. So my dad says, okay, all right. He feels much better. Now we are inside a rail car. It is about 150 degrees. (laughs) We are sweating can't believe how hot this is, but my dad's whistling because he thinks this is great. Okay. We're getting this thing back together and we're busting our rears for this work. And we get all these watermelons loaded. And just as soon as we finish up comes the car and it's running like a top. Wow. That's fantastic. It's late in the afternoon. And my dad says, wow, I really don't know how to thank you fellas. I really appreciate this good turn. And we're starting to go. And the mechanic says, Hey, whoa, where do you think you're going? And my dad's like, oh, I knew it. It's the deliverance moment where you're just like, oh, I knew these. And he stiffens like a leopard and all the fear and distrust and anger and frustration comes to his face. And the mechanic goes, no, 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 no. My wife's going to make us all Sunday dinner. And we figured that you and the boy could come over and get a shower, maybe a clean shirt, and we'll all have dinner together. So we sit down for dinner with these fellas and their lovely wives. And we're having fried chicken from the chicken rat over there. And we're having corn on the cob from the corn over there. And I will never have a meal that good ever again in my life. When we're getting ready to go, wearing one of these old cowboy shirts they gave me. It has the fake pearl buttons and everything. You know, it's just real Bakersfield. We get in that car and we go. And I don't think my dad said maybe three words on that whole drive back. Uh, When I got ready for bed, I was just ready to turn off the light. And my dad appears in the doorway And he says, listen, no matter what you see in the movies or you read in the papers or you listen to on the radio, you listen to me. That's how people really are. And about two weeks later, Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. And the reason I love that story so much is in that single day, my father had his faith in humanity restored. And... That was a beautiful thing to watch. Oh, Neil, that's awesome. 
I think we'll leave it there for everyone to break down that story based on what you shared so far. I want to turn to a couple of closing questions. So first, what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I love to spend time outdoors. So I love hiking, especially long, long hikes. But any activity that makes my wife smile and laugh, that's my favorite hobby. Now, she happens to like horseback riding, so we will often go on a summer trip for five days, six days out there horseback riding. I don't give a damn about riding horses, but <laughs> it just makes her happy as hell. So that is my favorite thing to do. What's your biggest pet peeve? I don't like bullies. I don't like smart people that like to hold it over dumb people and make them feel dumb. I don't like physically large people who try to intimidate others. That just sends me into a red mist. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I had a wonderful boss, Scott Gilbert, back when I was at Saatchi, and he was all things admirable. He just absolutely delighted in helping his people advance, and he would encourage them to get training, and he really cared about your career on your behalf. And it had this marvelous after effect of, for decades... Anybody that worked for him would tell you that was their favorite boss. And so to this day, he would teach at this community college. He would teach business. And he guest speakers to come in. They are a murderer's row of the greatest minds in advertising will come up to this small community college in Colorado just because they have such love for this guy. Yeah. How about a second one? My other boss at Saatchi, the CFO of the global organization, Bill Cochran was his name. I have never seen anybody quite as persuasive in my life. He had a knack for reading the minds of the people he was speaking to. He was a chameleon in the sense that no matter what kind of audience, no matter what age group, even though he wouldn't adopt their terminology and try to be hip with a bunch of 25-year-olds, they nevertheless looked at him like, oh yeah, that guy knows what he's talking about. He was affable, avuncular, he was easygoing, but ferociously intelligent and observant. He would look at you and take your measure. Very clever. So from that, I knew that it was possible. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My father had a very unfortunate quality in that he was so often disappointed by himself. He never felt like he lived up to his potential and it crushed him. It's quite a painful thing to watch your parent and they don't feel good about themselves. I thought it was completely unwarranted. It was a sad lesson, but I try not to be that person. I try to celebrate the small things that work out and not beat myself up too bad for the things that don't. All right, Neil, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? The really powerful thing was when you find colleagues that you really enjoy working with or whom you deeply respect, grab hold of them. America is about initiative. It's about starting things and trying things and going on adventures and not being afraid to fail. And when you find people who would make good partners in that adventure and trying ventures with them, because people that are really admirable and that you respect, they can cover up your flaws. If I knew in my 20s that the game was to find great partners, I think that would have led to a lot more ventures. Even if they weren't successful, they would have taught you the lessons that would have then subsequently led to success. Well, Neil, thanks so much for sharing this incredible lessons and in storytelling with us. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com 
where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.